0: Family, thank you so much for joining us for our teaching for this week. Our reading again comes from Genesis 1. We're going to read verse 1 and then skip down to verse 26. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then God said, Let us make men in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God, he created the male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. This is God's word. We've been looking at this passage for several weeks, and today I want to look at what it means to be human in light of the broader creation, the physical creation that God has made. So we're going to do that in three parts. First, we're going to look at what is this physical creation that God has made. The second is what is our role as human beings within the physical creation, And then finally, how do we live this role out? So what is it? What is, uh, how are we supposed to act? And then how do we live it out? First, let's look at what is creation? And in order to do this, we need to remind ourselves of the pattern that we see in Genesis 1. That there is a pattern every day, and there's a pattern to what's happening. So God, the pattern is that God is the main character of the story. He is not created, a created being. He is not part of our creation, but he is the creator. And he creates different things, physical things. When he creates, for example, uh, us as human beings, what that means is that there's a divine tension in what it means to be human. That we are not God, we are created. But we're created in the image of God. And that means that we all have this amazing amount of value. And there's a vision to what it means to be human, that we become more and more like God. And then there's also the physical part that we are embodied human beings. And this is a good thing in the Bible. And it's integral to being God's images in the world. And we're different. We're male and female. But by working together, we are able to image this God that we've seen. And the rest of creation follows this same pattern. That God is the main character in the story. But it sets up a tension that our physical world, as we're talking about today, is a good place. We saw last week, I said that, that uh, God says seven times in this narrative that what he's created is good. And so the physical creation, according to Genesis 1, is a good thing. Now that rounds counter to one of the narratives that, that is there in conservative Christianity that sees physical things and our physical lives and, and even our bodies as either afterthoughts or bad or as something to be used and abused as we want with it. And uh, they, we do this sometimes as a, a contrast between heaven and earth. The vision of what it means to be human and live in this world is actually ultimately to get out of here and to go to heaven. It's a kind of disembodied evacuation or ejector button. That's the point of what it means to be human. Get out of here. And a part of that story can say that the earth anyways is just going to be burned up. So it doesn't really matter what we do with it. We shouldn't care about it too much. Now this is a narrative you could pull, I think, from the Bible but it doesn't flow from Genesis 1. It's another example, in my opinion, from skipping Genesis, of skipping Genesis 1 and going directly to Genesis 3 and starting the story there. Because if we start the story in Genesis 1, this way of thinking that we're just supposed to get out of here is completely foreign. What we see in Genesis 1 is God saying that it is good. God saw everything that he had made in the passage we just read and said that it was very good. So the earth, the plants, the mountains, the oceans, people, it is very good. There's no hint that it's bad. And so the story isn't ultimately, or can't be, I don't think, that we're actually about just getting out of here, but rather an embodied participation with God, a delegated authority that he gives us his image here in this physical place to help set up a place where we can dwell with each other, with creation, and with God. That is the point, and and the world is good. It has a purpose, it has a goal, it has a mission. Or We have a mission here as human beings to reflect God into his good world. So we see in Genesis 1 that, that there, that's the first part of the tension. The creation is not bad or unnecessary or an afterthought, but it is good. And the second part is it's good, but it's not God. And there's a tendency in our culture... To rather than saying that the world is just good, to actually elevate it to the status of God, where it becomes an end in itself rather than something that reflects the God who has created it. And this, this theme is picked up again and again throughout the Bible, but maybe most notably by Paul in the book of Romans, where he says we have two options when we look at creation. The first is that we can see it as pointing beyond itself to the Creator, as revealing His character As Paul says his eternal power and his divine nature and attributes and this is what people like christian scientist francis collins says when he he worked on the human genome and he said my lab is a cathedral it's a place where i go to meet god and every time i look at a sequence of dna it points to something beyond that this place is a temple where god is dwelling so that's one option but the second option is that we can worship creation as if it's an end to itself Paul says that we worship in, in his time animals or people, or we just worship the creation as we do today to say this is the greatest end in our world. Now Paul says this is not the way that it was made to be. Because when we worship things that are good, and creation, Genesis 1 is very clear, creation is good, but when we put it into a place of being God, we raise it to a status that it doesn't have. It actually puts a pressure on creation that it can't handle. And creation will end up letting us down. But we'll also be degrading ourselves as human beings. We'll be dehumanizing ourselves because we were not made to worship stuff. In the Bible, we were were made for so much more. We were made to worship a transcendent, eternal, all-powerful creator God that we see in Genesis 1. Or as Paul says, the creator who is to be praised forevermore. That the God of the universe is so beautiful and glorious and magnificent that he is worthy of all our continual praise for all of eternity. And when we worship anything less, even things that are good like creation, when we move that into the space of God, we are living for less than we were made for. And so as beautiful as a sunset is at Stanley Park, or as beautiful as climbing the chief and looking down and seeing uh, the ocean and the mountains and the trees, these things are, are not ends in themselves, but they're signposts in the Bible. They point to an even greater reality of an even greater creator. And until we see that, Paul says, we'll be living for less than we were made for. So the creation is good, but it's not God, just like we've seen as everything else that's been created. So now what is humanity's role within this good but not God creation? Well, as we've seen before, humans are to reflect God. We're made in his image and to become like him. And that means we're to carry out the work that we've seen God already doing in Genesis 1. And I want to look at this through this verse in three parts, or through these verses in three parts of what it means to image God as his, uh, as his rulers in the world. So let's look at it in three parts. Verse 28 says, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So this is the first thing that we're called to do and it's pretty evident from uh, the passage that this means to have families and make babies but this goes beyond just a practical call it's something very beautiful in the story of scripture and if you remember to some of the other ancient near eastern creation narratives having having babies is something that's either used you know god's come and do that to people or it's something that's necessary or it's just an afterthought uh, it's something kind of dirty that happens But in Genesis 1, uh, having babies and and making, making children is a beautiful and amazing thing. Because every time that you have or make a kid, you are imaging God by working together. Remember, the vision of what it means to be human is embodied people, different, male and female, coming together. And this is how God has created us to image him. Secondly, we share in the divine work of creating human life. That's what we see God doing in the world when we are having kids and when we're getting ready for kids we're doing what we see God doing in Genesis 1 is to create a space where we can bring new life into the world the images of God and then finally we're passing on the divine image this is what God is doing in Genesis 1 he creates the world and then he puts his image in it and we're joining God when we have bring a new life into this world every time that we celebrate a new baby is here we're celebrating that someone has passed on the divine image and that will carry on into the next generation. And this is absolutely a staggering idea, an honor in the narrative of Genesis 1 of what it means to multiply and fill the earth. Now, I don't have to deal or time to deal with all the questions that this bring up, brings up, but I do wanna quickly talk about two of them that might be on your mind. The first is, um, what does this mean for those of us who are single or can't have kids or don't have kids? You know, can we still play a role in this story? Well, Jesus, uh, in his ministry, at the end of his ministry, he restates Genesis 1. And he says, go, therefore, and multiply. But he's not talking about uh, multiplying physically and having more kids. But he says, go, therefore, and make disciples. Multiply by, uh, spiritually by making disciples of all nations. And this is the call to all of his followers now. Not to make babies necessarily, but to make disciples. And this is something that all of us can do. For those of us who do have kids, we have built-in discipleship in our lives. We have these new images of God that we are called to, as Ephesians 5 says, help to grow up into the image of Christ and into, to be a reflection of God in their lives. If we don't have kids, uh, there are people that God says he's placed into our lives. And, and they are all images of God. And we are to invite them and proclaim to them this story of what it means to be human and invite them into the story of God and his unfolding creation in the world and to help them to see Jesus as the true image of God and then to call out in them uh, to become more and more like the image of God. And I want to say if if you uh, don't or can't uh, have kids, I want to make another plug to you that this is another amazing way for us to participate in God's story is by fostering and adopting, which is something that we um, have a lot of in our community and are very... uh, thankful to have as part of our community and part of God's family. So that's the first concern. The second concern deals with overpopulation. You may have heard of this because Prince Harry and Miley Cyrus are all endorsers of this view that there are too many people in the world. I did a bit of research on it because I didn't know a lot about this uh, perspective, but it was originally uh, created by an economist and a Christian named Reverend Thomas Malthus in the early 1900s. And uh, the population, his, his main idea was that population growth will outpace food production and this is going to lead to disease and famine and war. Now in general, my understanding is that he was incorrect. Food production has actually increased exponentially at the same rate or faster than the population. But there still is a problem, and the problem is that if everybody lives as we do in North America, which is consuming as much energy as we do, creating as much waste as we do and emitting as many pollutants as we do, then the growth of our population is actually unsustainable. We're living in an unsustainable way in the world. And so the problem isn't overpopulation. The problem is that everybody wants to live like Prince Harry or Miley Cyrus. And this leads us to the next two points uh, that we want to talk about of what it means to be made in God's image. Let's continue to read. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. We already looked at that. And it says, and subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. There's two key key terms here that I want you to see, subdue and rule. And subduing can be used, uh, it's quite strong language. It can be used as uh, conquering a nation, enslaving a nation or a person. And even once in the Bible, it's used to reference a sexual assault. So very strong language. Rule is very similar to what we would think of in, when we think of it in, in English. It's to be over and above someone, to rule over them as if the government does or a ruler might. And these are quite strong words. And uh, I think we, we pull back from them for two reasons. One is, I've already talked about in this series, that we think of freedom and what it means to be human as freedom from these things. That no one should tell me what to do. No one should rule over me. No one should try to subdue me. And so these are very negative terms in our world. The second is because we've seen them used in terrible ways in history. That people um, in the name of God and in the name of Genesis 1 have either, excuse me, ruled over others in very inappropriate ways or ruled over the earth in inappropriate ways. So we're very hesitant with these two words. And of course, like I said, the, the language is quite strong. But to make sense of it, I think we need to look, zoom out, and look at two patterns that we've already seen in Genesis 1 to understand what it means to rule and subdue. The first thing we need to see is that this is exactly the same pattern, ruling and subduing, as what it means to be human. Genesis 1 has a vision of what it means to be human, which means to become like God and reflect Him into the world. And in order to reach this vision, to become like Him, it's going to require our participation us working together with God because we are created good but we haven't arrived to this full vision of what it means to be human so we're going to have to work together with God to grow into it well, as I said uh, last week that we need to point our hearts continually into the right direction of the vision that God has for us of what human life looks like and we do that through our practices it's going to involve participation in order for us to become all that God has for us to be as human beings and fully reflect him into the world. So this passage is saying exactly the same thing. The pattern is the same for physical creation. Physical creation is good, but it needs our participation in order for it to fully realize its potential. So we have to avoid a romantic view of creation that that thinks there's only uh, planting but no weeding that's going to happen. This is a foreign view to Genesis 1 because there's still a forcefulness, something we are called to do as human beings in order for creation to become a place that is a place of shalom, a place for full cosmos flourishing. And so it follows that pattern, the same pattern of what it means to be human that we are called to join in uh, creation to create that pattern or to create uh, all that creation can be, just like we're called to partner with God to become all we can be as human beings. The second pattern that we need to see at work here is the pattern of God himself. Because the ultimate ruler and subduer is God. And so we have to ask, what does this look like In Genesis 1 for God to rule and subdue? What is the pattern that we are supposed to follow? What does it look like when he's in charge? What has he been doing in Genesis 1? And so we have to ask, have we seen him, you know, out there raping and pillaging the earth? Does God seem to be a self-centered character at all, only concerned about his own needs and his own desires, using things up for himself? Is he unconcerned with the other living beings in the cosmos? And the answer is absolutely not. God is the exact opposite of all of those things. He uses his amazingly great power, not for himself, but for creation and for blessing and for others. He is very busy ruling and subduing to create a place of shalom for flourishing, not only for humans, but for the whole world. He's a benevolent and serving king. And so our power is to follow this pattern too. Ruling and subduing is not absolute or unfettered power in the bible rather it's delegated power and we exercise dominion on behalf of god whose world we live in and so there's a a blueprint sorry for what our ruling and subduing are to look like and that blueprint is god himself And anytime we act outside of this blueprint some of the great fears we might have of us just going and abusing the environment or abusing other people we are actually abusing the gifts that we've been given we're acting outside of the power and authority outside the pattern that we see in genesis 1 of what it means to rule and subdue so that's the second thing that we're called to do rule and subdue but not just for our own benefit or for our own good but as A reflection of the God that we've already seen in Genesis 1. So let's keep reading. The third part of what it means to be human within the physical creation starts in verse 29. God also said, look, I've given you every seed bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you. So the world is given for sustenance for us. Um, That's what it's there for. But it's not just for me. The point isn't that I get what I want, but when it's referencing you there, it's referencing all of humanity. And the idea is there is that we are to use or to have the entire creation that is supposed to sustain us and give us food for every person. And when we consume more than we need, when we're polluting more than we ought, when we try to live like Prince Harry and Miley Cyrus, we're living outside the vision of Genesis 1. And I want to say that most people, or the people that are most affected by our overconsumption, by our North American style of life, are actually people that are living in the poorest places, in third world conditions. That's where the negative effects of the destruction of creation are felt more most accurately. But the creation isn't just meant for us. Let's continue reading. He says, God says that I will give every tree that contains seed there will be food for you. But verse thirty says, and for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky. every creature that crawls on the earth. So it's not just for us, it's for the animals as well, the bird, the wildlife, and the creatures. Dr. Ian Proven from Regent says, the main emphasis of Genesis 1 as a whole is not on dominion or ruling and subduing as humans at the top, but it's actually about our kinship and commonality with the animals and with the environment, specifically with the animals. We're made on the same day, We eat the same food, and we occupy the same space in the logic of Genesis 1. So human beings may be the pinnacle of creation. We are the ones that are ruling and reigning, but we're not the end of creation. And as we've seen, we're to use that ruling and reigning, that delegated power, the same way that God has. In service of others in our world. And so the world is not just here for me, the world is not even just here for us as humans, the world is here for all humans and animals and birds. But it actually even goes a step beyond that because it says not just animal, wildlife and birds and creatures that crawl on the earth but everything that has the breath of life in it. Now if you read the rest of Genesis, you will find these really, really boring genealogies that come up again and again. Let me just read one for you, for example. Here are Ham's sons, since you were wondering who they were. Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. Some amazing names there. Then Cush's sons. Seba, Havila, Sabata, and Bloringah, and Nothingah. And you're just like already falling asleep. These are the parts, you know, if you do Bible reading plans that you just skip over. I don't know if you're like me, but I, I start uh, the Bible, I try to read through it every year, and uh, it's when I come to these genealogies that I'm just like, oh, why? Why am I doing this? Uh, because they're so boring. But the the blessing of God, which is so evident in Genesis 1, that he blesses and he calls everything good, this is what many commentators is actually, or they, they say is actually the main theme of all of Genesis. And it's evidenced most clearly by God keeping his promise and his blessing alive, generation after generation and generation. It's saying God, each of these names is saying that God is faithful. This vision of being fruitful and multiplying and creating a place of shalom and that God's image carries on in humans in the world has happened for another generation. And the land and the creation is a key part of this. The creation isn't something we're supposed to just think of for our time but for all time, for the future generations that we have. And so ruling and subduing our world so that it can be a place of shalom is not just for us. It's not even just for the animals, but for future generations. And all of this is is very much on the mind of the authors of Genesis 1. So that's what it means to be human in our world. But how do we do this? How can we live in a way where we can carry God's story forward, where we can multiply see God's kingdom grow in the world, rule and subdue properly, to lead and live in the world as extensions of our generous and benevolent God King? And how can we be living in a world that's a place for all? We take care of our world so that future generations, everything that has the breath of life in it, can enjoy it. Well, how we act in our world depends largely on two things, and this is where we're going to end today. Our practices, as we talked about. What do we do as embodied characters in our embodied or in a physical world? And the story that we live in. Let's talk about our habits first. As, as I said last week, our habits rule our lives. So I, I just want to ask you the question, what are the habits that you have towards the creation that God has given us? And it can be overwhelming when we think about our habits um, I, you know, for me, I don't know everything about the environment and so many of the decisions that I make on a daily basis are, are like three or four steps removed from the, the actual environmental impact that I might see. But I still encourage you that every year, that our, or I'll say as an example, every year our family tries to make one change uh, to our habits of stewarding to live in a good creation. And here's some, we're, we're not perfect, I don't want to at all give you that idea. We've missed years, and we have done things that haven't worked out, but we've tried a lot of different things. And so here's a couple ideas of how you can change your patterns. We moved into a high-density living situation. We've committed to recycling and composting. We've sold our car. We tried to live and buy local. We tried to eat less beef and less meat. I buy almost all my clothes secondhand. And this year we've tried to buy more glass than plastic because I've been reading a bit about how plastic is really, really hard, actually, to recycle. and, and So these are a few things and maybe some ideas of what you can do. And I found this. Our city talks a really big game about environmentalism. And there are some great changes that our city has made. But so many people, they stall out at the level of action, of practice. And each of those things that I mentioned for our family, they involve planning and time and energy and change and sacrifice. And they're annoying i'm not going to lie Uh, not having a car isn't the most um, convenient thing in the world but there are opportunities each of them are opportunities for us to check what story we live in and which way our practices are forming us are we are we living into the story of being god's images and caring for his world are we living in some other story and we as followers of Jesus and, and people who have been rehearsing this story now for weeks have a chance to, to live it out, to live out what it means to be God's images in the world. And I think that we actually have a chance to live it maybe in a way that the people in our, um, in our city don't as much as they care about environmentalism because we have a stronger story, a story that allows us to sacrifice about a God who has gifted us and made this creation and called it good and we are called to participate in it so that's our practices, and I encourage you, those are just some examples of things that we've done as a family. Don't, definitely don't have to do them all, but I encourage you to think through, what is God calling me to do? Um, how can I practice into the world as a way of being God's image and living into the calling that he's given me? The second thing that Genesis calls us into is or the way that we can live into this vision of what it means to be human and stewards of God's world is, is to understand, uh, to live in his story, where the world is a gift. That's what Genesis 1 invites us to. The world is ultimately God's, that he's created everything. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and he gives it to us as a gift. God doesn't need this world, but he creates it. We need it, so he gives it to us. And it's his grace and good pleasure throughout, his free gift and an act of complete gratuity. One author said there's nothing that stands outside of this economy of divine donation in Genesis 1. Therefore, we should approach the physical world and God's creation, not as a given, but as a gift. And as we've seen, being human is a gift too. Not only the fact that I exist, that I have the breath of life in me for today as long as I do, which is itself a gift, but Genesis 1 says that each one of us has the amazing gift of carrying the name of God into the world. the ability to reflect him and become like him these are all gifts in the bible god says you are my image and the world will know and experience what i'm like through your lives and through your leadership now when we think of gifts in the west we often think of of no strings attached this is what the philosophers call free gifts but in the time of the bible that's not how they thought of gifts gifts were different than market transactions or loans You're not indebted to pay them back in the same way. But if we think, and if we think of the gifts that God has given us that I've just listed of what it means to have the breath of life in us or to have physical creation, there's no way we could pay them back. Like it's absolutely absurd for us to think that we can. The theological term here to describe these kind of gifts is superabundance. that the gift is so extravagant that there's absolutely no way I could pay it back. So God is not giving us creation as a loan. But in the time of the Bible, a superabundant gift was, was to do two things to the receiver. It was to, ch- or sorry, it was to change the, the receiver. That's the first thing. To change the person in order that they would become thankful. That there would be a change. That people would, who receive the gift would become those who live a life worthy of the gift that they've received. So that the Bible says that the gift was not given in vain. And when we lose sight of the things that God has given us. All right ability to breathe and the creation. When we see them not as a gifts and we looked at them as given, we lose this response that we're called to, which is thanksgiving, or other ways in the Bible, would be called worship. That we turn to God, the giver of the good gifts, and we worship him. The second reason gifts are given, these superabundant gifts, is to create a relationship between the giver and the receiver. And again, it's not a relationship where you owe that person, where you you have to pay them back. But it's a physical, the gift is a physical manifestation of the relationship between the two parties. That who we are is in relationship with one another. And in Genesis, God is the giver of the gift and we are the receiver. He is the God and we are the reflection. He is the king and we are his vice versa. Regents in the world. His representation called to carry out his name in the world. So every one of God's gifts that he gives us are supposed to accomplish these outcomes. That we become people who are thankful. And that it establishes a relationship with us and with God, the giver of the gift. And the Bible is full of these gifts. In the Gospel of John, it says that we have received gift upon gift. Or you might know the other translation, grace upon grace. Genesis 1 tells the story of a God who gives us a grace. He creates the world and invites us to be kings in the shape of God himself. And he gives us food for the life of the world. And he asks us to live into each of these gifts. He invites us into this story. But as we know and as we see around us, we've messed that up. Sin, as one author says it, is the refusal of God's gifts. The refusal to see what God is giving us as a gift or the refusal to receive it as a gift but the great news of the story of God just like he cares about generation after generation is that he doesn't give up he's concerned with this blessing carrying on in boring lineages but in each one of our lives and in every future generation and so God reenacts the story again he gives him another gift Jesus the very creator himself comes the same pattern he becomes a human, and He lives fully as the kings that we were designed to be. And He gives Himself and His body as the new food for the life of the world. And when we take the cup and the bread together, the communion that we do, this is what we celebrate, that we receive the gift of God, of Jesus, which is the gift of re-entry into the divine life, but also the gift of creation. And by using physical wine or juice or and bread, we are, we are physically taking this in. And we, we remind ourselves of the gift of what it means to be human, that we are dependent on the creation and it is a gift to us. And Jesus reinvites us into this whole story with a simple practice. That's what the table is all about. The practice of this gift of being receivers from the divine king of the world. Of receiving gift, the humanity as a gift. Of receiving creation as a gift and receiving the grace of Jesus as a gift. Of grace upon grace, gift upon gift. Of a superabundant and glorious gift that we can never hope to repay but we can live into. That's the story that we're called to live into as followers of Jesus. The practice that we can, practices that we can do that set our hearts to this good life and this vision of what it means to be human and live within creation as people who are called to steward creation and to rule and subdue in the reflection of our creator God into a creation that is good, but not God itself. Would you pray with me as we close? God, thank you for this word. Thank you for this vision of what it means to be your representations here in the world. Now ask for myself and for my family and for each one of us that you would help us to live into this vision to live in this story, to see all these things as gifts and that we would respond in the correct way with thankfulness and with joy and with worship and that it would change us from the inside out. That we would change our patterns of living in order to live into your story. So I pray for each one of us that this would be true and uh, you would make it more and more true of our our community that we would be a light into this world, people that uh, reflect your image into the watching world. So we pray that all in the name of Christ, amen.